This is disciplining yourself to do what you know is right and important, although difficult, is the high road to pride, self-esteem and personal satisfaction. Those were the words of the late Margaret Thatcher on the eve of the 1983 election. And uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, we'll be talking about that election today. And I'm also very excited to say that um, today we have a very special guest, the leader of the Social Democrat Party, William Clouston. Welcome to the show, William. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And of course, um, I haven't just uh, chosen you at random. Uh, of course, 1983 was the first general election which the Social Democrat Party fought. Um, so, William, could you just give us a brief um, um, sort of overview of your political journey? Um, the, yeah, the briefest um, is basically that I was I was influenced by my father, um, who was a Labour Party member and uh, in 1981 was a founder member of the SDP and uh, I joined in the early 80s. I fought on elections, by-elections in 82 and I, I, 83 was the first general election I worked hard on and uh, it was a very, I would say it was a formative experience for me. Uh, it was very, very interesting general election, 83. Um, Mrs. Thatcher's landslide uh, election victory. Um, and obviously for the SDP, it was uh, an absolutely critical uh, general election. To, and, and I I have, um, as I say, very strong memories. I was actually a candidate, but only in my school election. <laughs> in those days, I was an SDP candidate and uh, I lost to a Tory in my school. But uh, anyway, I came second. Oh, not bad then, not bad. <laughs> So let's just set the scene a bit for um, the 1983 election. So a lot of uh, commentators described Britain as the sick man of Europe by the, by the end of the 1970s. Why was that? Um, it, was, it was, I mean, that, that, that sort of title, the way people look at it, it was, it was the 70s has a terrible rap. Um, you know, it's associated with industrial uh, unrest, uh, you know, the, the NUM uh, striking and effectively bringing down uh, the Heath government in 74. Uh, and then you have uh, the uh, application for a bailout from the IMF in 76 by Dennis Healy. And then by the late 70s, and you have industrial unrest and strife and, you know, and, and, and power cuts. I remember, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember 70, 73, 74 power cuts where, you know, literally electricity was, was, was shut off um, at times and you had, you had to use candles. And then by the end of the 70s, <clears throat> you had, uh, you know, the, the, the famous winter of discontent where labor relations deteriorated uh, rapidly and um, you know, key key workers uh, went on strike, and, and bins weren't collected, and so on. Um, so that's the sort of that's the sort of backdrop to it. Um, <clears throat> it's worth thinking a little bit prior to that because um, the seventies was really the breakdown in in what I would call the the sort of butskull butskullite consensus. Um, what is that? That's that was the post-war consensus between the Labour Party and the Tory party uh, on the sort of broad approach to economic uh, policy. The Tories were always more 
uh, feudal, more uh, keener on um, protecting uh, entrenched privilege and so on. But the, so there were differences. But actually, on the on on economic management, there wasn't that much difference. Uh, that's hence the term butt school. Butt school is is uh, rap, you know a combination of Rab Butler, who was the prominent Tory thinker in the fifties. And, uh, and and Hugh Gateskill, who was the Labour leader, who sad, sadly died um, in, uh, too early. So they, they I think um, I think that was proven by uh, Harold Macmillan's famous quote that uh, conservatism was a form of paternal socialism. That's right. Yes, and, and Macmillan was a very good example of that um, because <clears throat> uh, you couldn't you you couldn't put a, a cigarette paper between Macmillan's approach as, as housing minister for, for Churchill and say the, the approach of Clement Attlee's government on, on housing, for instance. I'm not saying, I mean, the, the, the word difference, I mean, you know, the post, post-war nationalizations that Labour did, uh, you know, were not supported by the Tories, but I'm talking about general economic management, the idea of demand management, a Keynesian consensus on, on economics was, was broadly held. And, um, and they, and you also had, a, you know, the rebuilding of a national economy. It's not well known, but in the early part of the 1900s, Britain, Britain's trading system was really part of, a, you know, massive empire, and was was imperial and international. And post-war, from 45 to 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 about the late 70s, you had the reemergence of an, a national economy, a nationally focused economy. So you had the national coal board, the national railways, uh, you know, power generation, and an economic focus was was very national. It was, you know, you you were concerned. Governments tried to to manage the economy in those terms, and and really, anyway, so you get to the, you get this consensus, and very little really uh, between the the, the the various governments in the fifties and sixties. And then that consensus breaks down in the 70s. Uh, things come to a head. And as I say, people can use various terms for it. Sick man of Europe. Partly it was, um, I'd say, a loss of confidence about the model, mm. about the post-war model. And intellectually, it became uh, under challenge from uh, right-wing uh, liberal economic ideas, uh, you know, Hayek. But really, into the Tory party, really, uh, promoted by people like Keith Joseph, who was uh, probably their main economic thinker, and he influenced Thatcher. And so that you've got this new new idea that you just can't go on like this. You know, we, it, what, what we've been trying has failed, and we've got to get on to something else. Um, so that was the sort of backdrop. Now, I, I'm going to make a point which is quite important here, which is that the when I said that the 70s has a bad reputation, some of that is actually unwarranted on the data. So the fascinating thing is, if you take post-war growth in Britain um, from, from 45 to say 1980, in those decades you had Britain grew GDP growth of about 3% each decade, more or less. Now, since the Thatcher era and sort of neoliberal economics era, that's halved. <laughs> now, the curious thing is the the the, the 70s has a terrible rap, but actually a lot of good things happened economically in the 70s, and a lot of the data uh, was actually not as bad as it's portrayed now. You, you've got this impression where it was absolutely a basket case, it was terrible, mm. and Thatcher got in and it became better. Well, actually, Save the country. 
Yeah, save the country. Well, in fact, that's that's not strictly true um, <laughs> in many, many ways. But but that's it, it's almost impossible. I mean, you get, you know, people arguing that Thatcher reduced the size of the state. Untrue. So a lot mm. of these basic premises are not true. Kevin Hickson's quite good. He's brought a couple of books out recently, one on Peter Shaw and one on Cal uh, Jim Callahan, which tries to set the record a little bit straighter on these things. But anyway, that's the that's the sort of backdrop i think i i wouldn't you can't emphasize um too little the sense of a, a loss of confidence um in the country the these are the sort of things where you know sort of increasing lassitude and sort of uh you know sense of decline and loss of confidence and i think a lot of people um attribute the application to join the european union for instance as as, as a as okay. a, an example of that loss of confidence <clears throat> You don't have the confidence to run your own affairs. Well, we better throw our hat in with the EU. And at the time, the EU, the main economies were growing more quickly than us. Uh, I don't doubt that. Um, but that was partly because they had they had a much lower base. I mean, it, the post-war reconstruction, reindustrialization, they were going through was slightly different to us. Um, but that's the that's the basic pattern that we had uh, in the 70s. The sense that things had to change. I'd like to have a very nice quote from uh, Peter Shaw, which is from Dr. Kevin Hickinson's uh, book, mm. who says uh, what the advocates of membership are saying, common market membership, consistently and indigenously, is that we are finished as a country, that the long and famous story of the British nation and the people has ended, that we are now so weak and powerless that we must accept terms and conditions, penalties and limitation, almost as though we had suffered defeat in war, that though we have had the right on the June the 5th, we have no option but to remain in the common market age. That's uh, it. Yeah. But I think the greatest criticism that we had at the time, and which we, we still do now, I think, is that we, we had very low productivity compared to our competitors in, in the US and, and Europe and our the, the pound we, we were forced to devalue in, I think it was 1967 by around 14%. And mm. it, it seems to be a, a problem that we've had for, for quite some time now, low, low productivity. Yeah, um, a lot of that was, I mean, industrially, a lot of that was literally um, to do with the, 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 the industrial structure of the, the, our main competitors in Europe. So um, German industry was largely rebuilt uh, from scratch, because you know the cities were actually bombed out. Uh, you, you used martial aid to rebuild industry from scratch, uh, and obviously, with, you know, you, then you had this massive um, uh, upswelling industrially, and the German, German, West German economy started to do very, very well. Um, again, it was, it was, it was more. It was, it was a result of a, a catastrophe, I, I suppose, from a German point of view. And a sense that you know they'd had their their major shock, you know, state failure, partition. People forget, you know, the, the state was carved up. Mm. Um, so whatever sense the population had, um, there, there wasn't a question of sort of well, we'll just muddle on and it'll be fine. So greater intensity. Likewise, in France, actually, France uh, post-war, if you take a snapshot, wasn't a hugely industrial society. It was still quite a yeah rural agrarian society and so their industrialization process in the 40s 50s 60s again you had you had brand new industry britain britain situation was a little bit different and and having a much 
uh, higher uh, threshold, really. You know, you, you, it was a highly industrial economy. Manufacturing was, you know, basically half the half GDP, and the, therefore there wasn't um, there wasn't rationalisation. So you, you had these companies. Uh, I mean, the car industry is a very good example of of compare it to say the German car industry, where you know, by the 70s, the Germans were focusing on one small car that would knock the ball out of the park, which was the VW Golf, you know, and it did. And it was and it was much, much easier and better to produce one great one. The British car industry had never been rationalized uh, until parts of it were rationalized under um, nationalization. We had too many producers and it was never no one ever said, well, you know, you actually, you know, to produce a car in Oxford that will compete with a car in, made in Birmingham or Coventry or Swindon or whatever, uh, it's not a good idea. And so in every single category of the car market, uh, Britain had several cars, quite often mediocre. So there wasn't that sense of sort of, you know, fresh start, uh, what are we going to produce and so on, which has never happened. Um, and that has a, a, a justified criticism. Macroeconomically, the, crit the, the, the chronic issue as you say, with low productivity, was balance of payments difficulties, and then constant pressure on the pound, and um, and of course the the famous devaluation, you know, the Wilson did, uh, you know, it won't make any difference to the pound in your pocket, which I mean it's sort of true and it's quite a quite a good line, but um, it's a symptom of lack of productivity, and uh, on the other hand, the floating exchange rate like that does work uh, to try and correct it, you know. Um, uh, a falling pan makes uh, ex uh, imports more expensive. So you have a sort of, you have an adjustment that, that will occur. Um, and certainly they, they you know, uh, uh, Wilson's government wanted a, a, a pan to go down because he wanted exports to go up. Um, but that was a chronic issue. And the other chronic issue that all governments, you know, blue or red faced in the 50s, 60s, particularly by the 60s and early 70s, um, was the trade-off between unemployment and growth. So most of the economic policy was uh, dealing with this issue of stop-go. Every single time you had high economic growth, you got inflation, and then inflation would, af would affect uh, productivity and growth eventually anyway. So th th this was the difficulty, and, and the, the, the trade-off to some extent, right to the 80s, was, was unemployment. Um, you know, if you put interest rates up to, to, to put downward pressure on inflation, unemployment would go up, economic growth would, would slow. Um, it was a chronic problem. If you, it, it, every single time Britain grew too quickly, inflation uh, just, just was unleashed, basically. And, that, and actually inflation, the debate about monetarism and inflation by, the, by 76 anyway, uh, and right on to throughout the 80s was a, was a main it was one of the principal gulfs uh, between the parties. Basically, you had uh, dry economic dries, monetarists on one side who, who were taking arguably a brutal uh, approach and, and, and would, 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 would want to tackle inflation at the cost of higher unemployment. And then you had people on the left arguing for a looser um, situation. It was, it was a chronic problem. It's very interesting that uh, um, for various reasons we haven't dealt with inflation for, for generation and suddenly it's come back it's quite interesting that our um, perspective on these things have, have changed quite a bit because uh, uh, I was reading about how uh, at the time uh, labor in this sort of 
era, they were, they were panicking when uh, unemployment was reaching 2%. They saw that as too high, uh, whereas uh, inflation wasn't um, quite the big a deal as it was. Whereas today, you know, we, we, we accept that uh, for around 4% is pretty good for unemployment figures. But yeah, uh, as soon as inflation passes the two three percent mark then there's a national panic so it's funny how our our perspectives have changed quite a lot since yeah there's a little bit of i mean uh, again there were labor shortages in in the uk in the late 40s and 50s uh of course labor was priced differently then um the whole the whole structure was different um but yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to to to, to sort of compare then with now. I, I think the the worrying thing is that policymakers are just totally unaccustomed with inflation. It just never happened. I mean, this this generation of policymakers have not really dealt with it, um, never experienced it. Um, as far as the unemployment uh, figures now are concerned, it's it's what governments have done is slightly cheat really on on, on it by putting people on on long term disability uh payments i mean we, you know so britain now has about 5.3 million people on on long-term sick various kinds uh and so that's really a sort of distortion of of the true level of unemployment i, I would say and uh, in inflation in itself then is it as big as a concern as it should be in itself or now yeah yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 as I say, I think there are lots of, lots of, lots of, lots of factors in this, and uh, economists can write papers and discuss it. But you know, uh, uh, we've had falling. Probably the, 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 there's a single graph which is probably the most important graph for for, for Western politics now, which is just the, the falling price of ten-year, uh, the yield on ten-year bonds in the states and here, or whatever. You get this continual fall in the, in, in in the price. Um, so basically, money's become much much cheaper. Interest rates have become very very low, and and in a way that's shielded. Uh, it's, 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 you can argue it's distortion in the price of money, the proper price of money, a natural rate of interest. But it's it's very low, and and, and of course that's that's shielded the the effects of very high debt uh, in all sectors, households and, and government and um corporates having you know shed loads of debt but very very low interest rates that's fine if the interest rates if and only if the interest rate remains low the moment uh you get inversion in that yield uh you're in trouble and and that's what's happening now and a a lot of chickens are coming home to roost i mean there are lots of macroeconomic reasons for these things but the yeah, I mean, an underrated reason, for instance, is the just the, in, in, the introduction of China in, into the WTO mm. 30, 40 years ago, and Chinese Chinese exports and industrial productivity, and, and the way that Chinese have priced their exports has artificially kept inflation low. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about components or consumer durables or bicycles or whatever you're talking about, um, the price of them has been kept very, very low because we've exported industrial production to China and, and it's been you know very 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 cheap arguably too cheap um, and and you know so the the metaphor is that we've gone from a, an economy where we would have had a, two or three jumpers or t-shirts in our our, our, our chest of drawers uh, hmm. to, you know which might have been quite expensive and we might have repaired 
um, to, to having 50 or 60 cheap ones, you know, made, made in sweatshops. And that's, 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 that's changing now. And so I, I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist on inflation. I think it'd be quite difficult. Uh, it'd be quite difficult to, to get the genie back into the bottle or the toothpaste <laughs> To the tube um, once it starts it's very difficult because it's then you, you you look at these strikes now the rmt which have a lot of sympathy you know on the on the on the basic idea you know we have another pay rise for three years why wouldn't they ask for a pay rise and they're not even asking for a pay rise which is inflation it's that they've asked for seven percent so once it starts you get into this wage price spiral upwards and it's very, very difficult to get out of. By the way, Julian, when inflation started in the 70s, 71, 72, and you had the petrol crisis then, um, all, all economists, virtually the consensus was that it was transitory. <laughs> and it wasn't. So just, I'm just flagging that up. So people that say that it's transitory now, maybe, maybe not. So let, let's just return back to the election then. So we, we've had the winter of discontent. So in 1980, Labour has its leadership election after uh, Callaghan loses to Thatcher for the mm. first time. Mm. So Dennis Healy actually won the first ballot, but then he's defeated by Michael Foote in the second. And we know that Peter Shaw was also a candidate in the first round. Mm. How crucial was the election of Michael Foote as a Labour leader? Um, it, it was massive. And it was on a on an absolute knife edge, really. When you think about, I mean, you had Silkin and Shaw. I don't think. I mean, as um, some of you may know, Shaw's a major political hero of mine, probably the, the biggest one. Um, uh, but he was he was not very you know very able, but he was not clubbable enough to 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 really to win that election. Um, uh, probably hadn't uh, patronised Labour MPs to the. <laughs> had to and so on and so forth so and he also you know and actually quite a shy man i know he did you know he, brilliant speaker when he got got going mm. speech to the oxford union 75 is, is, is arguably the best political speech ever but he wouldn't have won it john silkin again was sort of a figure that wouldn't have won you know respected figure so yeah you've got this massive face-off between the left and the right of the labor party and the margin was very, very small in the end, actually. And, you know, a few people would have shifted it either way. I think uh, didn't didn't um, foot win by sort of two or three percent. Um, so, yeah, it was massive. I don't I mean, in history, political history, I'm not sure in the end, I'm not sure that that Healy would have served the Labour Party that well. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, as being someone who's involved at the time at the split, uh, I'm glad the split happened. Um, I'm glad the SDP was formed, um, and it sort of brought things to a head. Um, so yes, it's just one of those things you can you can you can say. I mean, the interesting thing is that Foot wasn't going to stand. I mean, he was he he'd agreed with Shaw that he wasn't going to stand. Uh, so theoretically, if Shaw Shaw against Healy, maybe Healy would have won. I don't know. And uh, just before we move on to the SDP, actually, so in 1983, the, the Labour manifesto was known as uh, the longest suicide note in history. Mm. Uh, so, so some of the policies we have, uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament, higher personal taxation for the rich, 
withdrawal from the uh, European Economic Community, abolition of the House of Lords and renationalisation of all the recently privatised industries such as British Aerospace, British Shipbuilders Corporation. So was a Thatcher-type figure always destined to win in the 1980s? Were, were the British people past post-war consensus? I think they probably were past the the post-war consensus. They, that, that's probably true. And, and the fact that she did win and, and won a landslide is, is probably a, you know, a, a vindication of that view. They probably were ready for something different. <clears throat> but, um, and actually the SDP always gets accused of, of splitting the left-wing vote, mm -hmm. causing the, um, the Thatcher landslide. That's actually technically untrue. Um, and Crew and King, there's a, there's a massive book, um, The Birth and Life and Death of the Social Democratic Party by Crew and King, which is about a third of a million words. And I've run it, I've, I've, I've read it through twice, and I've read some of it more than twice. Uh, in that book, they, they address this question, actually, the, the claim by those on the left that we split the left and let her in is, is, is untrue. SDP voters, particularly, if you if you put them against the wall and said you're going to vote either Labour or Tory, slightly more would have voted Tory, not by much, but but in, interestingly. So if we weren't there, if you take us out, it wouldn't have made that much difference um, to the to the end result. Given given all of the things that had happened, the, you know, the positioning of the Labour Party in the '83 election, the Falklands War, and everything had happened in the in the '70s and late '70s. So yeah, I think it's it, it, you know. I think it was always going to happen um, to some extent. I think the Labour Party, what you could say is the Labour Party made it easier, uh, you know, the, the longest suicide note in history. I mean, you know, some, some of, in retrospect, some of the ideas like not being in the EC is probably <laughs> quite sensible. But, um, you know, the rest of it, the key, the key people forget, and it's, it's difficult to, to, I can't express this strongly enough, People forget how important a totem issue was uh, like nuclear disarmament, unilateral mm. disarmament. People were, because it was a totem of how you, your general attitude towards taking on the Soviet Union, you're in the Cold War. It's, it is the Cold War. You know, the Iron Curtain was there. It's difficult in this time of open borders to, for people to, 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 to sort of get their heads around what it was like. But for me, being you know born in the mid '60s and living through it, um, it was it was it was how the world was. That you know the, you couldn't travel around. The, I mean, I you know I travelled through the Iron Curtain in the '80s um, to visit a friend in Warsaw, and you checked all the way, and you really you know it, it was it was barbed wire. There was no freedom of movement. <laughs> that's that's a, I, I I I when people say well, it's funny because some of my age that's experienced that, and people say, oh, you can't stop people. You can. It depends what you want to do. It depends entirely. I mean, a, 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 even a even a poor state can can control its borders if it wants to. I mean, you know, you couldn't wander in from Greece to Bulgaria, you know, during the during the Cold War. Just you just, you'd get shot. So um, yeah. So so it's it's good it's a good idea to sort of think about that. But the um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a different world. So so whether you were prepared to unilaterally give up your nuclear deterrent was a real totem 
and it, you know you at the time as a, as a young person you're either a, a multilateralist or a unilateralist and if you're a unilateralist uh labor supporter you know you you, you had the sort of slight stench of pro-soviet uh, mm. pacifism or or at least weakness anyway so that was a so i don't know with with the issue with that issue is was so important to michael foot as a sort of west country pacifist uh you know it was never going to have popular appeal actually so let's have a look at the uh, sdp's formation then so uh, i'm just going to read a little bit of the limehouse declaration uh which was of course uh, 40 years ago now mm. and uh, which was the beginning of the sdp so the, it says the progressive decay of the independence of the labor party in the face of increased trade union involvement in all the areas of party policy and mechanism has culminated in a catastrophic assembly conference as a result of this conference the leadership of the labor party is now to be decided by a handful of trade union leaders in a smoke-filled room. This is the final straw for a party which has been set on this course for the last 20 years. From the actions of the militant tendencies to the accusations of corruption from former Labour MPs such as Milne in 1976, it is now apparent that Labour is no longer a party committed to parliamentary government. In light of these changes, we propose in this document uh, to begin a new force in the British polity. Ours will be a council of social democracy with a commitment to rally and represent all Britons who still hold the aforementioned principle of social democracy. So, William, how does the SDP uh, become? Yes, um, well, <clears throat> it was... It's, it's really the culmination. One of the things about these, if you have a two-party system, um, which we do, and interestingly, Anglo countries tend to, I've, I've mentioned this before, um, you know, Canada, the United States, Ireland, and it's breaking up a little bit in Ireland, but the, and, and Britain and Australia and New Zealand uh, have, you know, basically have two-party systems. quite interesting. There must be something cultural going on there. But if you do have that, uh your your two parties are massively you know they're, they're broad church uh entities and um therefore you get factionalism you have everyone from you know in the labor party you have everyone from communists you know proper socialist uh left-wing socialists to social democrats uh and it's a it's a broad church and the broad church in the labor party fights fights itself and and, and breaks into factions. This is inevitable. You have groups. You have the Tribune group. In the in the seventies, the groups that became the SDP, you know, you had things like the Campaign for Labour Victory. You had uh, you have a campaign for the Democratic Socialism, the Social Democratic Alliance. This is all within the Labour Party. Little groups of, of of MPs and others, and you know, so they were sort of broadly the right of the Labour Party, Gatescalites, if you like. Um, and so out of that rancor, then, 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 you know, possibly as a result of, 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 of losing the 79 election, it just becomes open warfare. It just becomes, you know, a, a nasty civil war in the, in the Labour Party between left and right. And those on the, on the, towards the centre, uh, you know, were getting threatened with the selection from their seats. 
deselection from their seats was a high predictor of whether someone would defect by the way it wasn't all it wasn't all um you know high principle some of it was just you know i think they thought they were going to get deselected and didn't want militant to say their seats off them so they jumped but the rancor i mean it was it was hate-filled militant tendency uh was a sort of nowadays you'd probably say it was sort of corbynist type um momentum thing but it was much more it was much harder than that it was smaller than momentum and it was it was nastier probably anyway that's that's the sort of backdrop to that and so some people felt they were losing control i guess or influence in the party they're in and, and that in, included three very important figures owen uh, williams and rogers who you know met together regularly in uh, Williams's flat in Rochester Row in London would have, you know, drinks and, and talk about what they were going to do. The Roy Jenkins had become, uh, uh, you know, was, was head of the European Commission uh, in Brussels and was slightly out of British politics, but he did a famous speech um, in, in uh, 1980, the Dimbleby lecture, uh, in which he was talking about realignment. So a lot of talk, a lot of talk prior to the SDP starting about a realignment or a new centre party of some kind, and so when it actually happened, um, it wasn't a surprise. I mean, the, you know, the, this is, I mean, even Owen had been talking about it openly uh, about what you know that the Labour Party could split. Um, <clears throat> so that that was a sort of the sort of broad uh, background, and then and then obviously it did. Uh, you know, had that terrible Wembley conference. Uh, you know, where or anyone on the centre or the right was shouted down. They lost all the motions. A horrible conference. And that sort of clinched it, and they they drafted Limehouse uh, shortly after that, announced it, and then and formally launched the party in uh, March '81. Um, the um, yeah, I mean, the Limehouse Declaration is interesting in retrospect. Uh, it's not actually. I, I should. I'm not sure if I should be saying this really. It was not actually that good a document. Uh, it was written quite quickly in uh, in David Owen's house in Limehouse. Uh, and actually, in the days before um, photocopiers, photocopiers and, and before the internet, they actually had a draft typed out and rushed to the Savoy Hotel and used their photocopier to give it out to the press. Um, I, I say it's not that good. I mean, it's not a. It's it's a foundation document for the party, but it's not actually very broad. The interesting thing about it is that it's incredibly self-absorbed. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but. The whole document is about the, the the machinations and conflicts in in the Labour Party, <laughs> Thatcherism and the threat from neoliberalism that was coming. It was not virtually not mentioned. Mm, yeah. It was something that John Gray wrote about uh, ten years ago when he was reviewing it. Said so it's just astonishing how the Social Democrats that formed the SCP weren't thinking about their the major opposition they were thinking about their internal conflict and so most of it's about the labor party as i say reread it it's quite short most of it's about you know about fights in the labor party basically not about the country necessarily as much as it should be and not about the the political challenge uh, against their way of thinking i think john gray says that they had the attitude that really they should they were the establishment and it, and after a few years thatcherism would would, would be put in its place and they mm. really reassert their power so anyway it's very interesting and that you know that that's 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 what happened and so we yeah so we're into this march 81 parties launched 
and shortly after starts getting polling of uh, one point over 50% of the public would have voted for the SDP. Uh, so, and about 80, uh, it's calculated 80 million at that uh, in 1981 prices of free publicity. So one of the fascinating things about the SDP was it started at the top and worked its way down. That's just true. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's true. Whatever we're doing now to re, 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 uh, establish it, that, you know, this is the first time, I think the last few years has been the first time where you've actually got genuine growth back up rather than starting at the top and gradually, gradually declining. And what were some of the core principles from the beginning and how has the party changed since its creation? Really good question, Julian, that. And I, because I, because I, you always get some people challenge, you know, ask whether we are the party. Of course, we are the party because parties are voluntary associations. And uh, the fact that we've got the name and the logo and, and actually the bank account in some places is an indication that, <laughs> you know, we are, we are the remaining Owenite uh, SDP. Um, so, yeah, the core principles support for the European Union or what was called which was called the European Economic Community uh, the, of the time so pro uh, pro now you'd regard it as a pro EU stance uh, uh, support for what what we call what they called then and what we call now is social market economy which is the basic idea that the state should look after its part of uh, the economy the the part that it that it has should have a responsibility for, and that the market should generate the wealth um, that, that supports that. Uh, so it's it's pro market and pro state. Uh, that that was that was the uh, core principle. Uh, and the the other the third one is just political reform, um, which was PR basically, I and mean, reform of the House of Lords. But basically, the the idea was that the two party system wasn't working, and that. Introducing proportional representation would would transform British politics um, from from that to to a more they thought and probably I, I agree a more dynamic uh, system where people could vote for what they really believed in instead of these dreadful great big uh, red and blue coalitions. So those were the three things: the support of the EU, social market economy, and PR. That was the platform. Now, how does it differ? Um, it it it. it we obviously the the support for the EU has changed completely. Uh, largely, we've taken the path that David Owen has taken. You're not, to be fair, you're not comparing like with like the European Economic Community, the Common Market, as it was called. It was always more more than that. Actually, it was you know, it, it, but but in those days, you could say, well, just we're in a trading block, and then the European Union becomes something different. So as the European Union becomes, you know, a sort of proto state or federal state. Um, the SDP has become less uh, inclined to support it, a more defensive of the nation state. I think that's the right mm. position. The people think that that's something that's happened recently. Um, not true. In '79, in '89, under David Owen's leadership, uh, the Scarborough Conference passed a motion saying the SDP would never support a united Europe. Well. By then, the Liberals were saying, "Oh, we'd love a united Europe." So, so actually, the 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 origin of of Euroscepticism in the SDP goes back to the eighties, which is which is very interesting. But early eighties, pro EU, um, social market approach, I would say, is identical. 
I don't think it's changed at all. I don't mm -hmm. I think no difference at all in that basic approach. I think it's the right approach. Um, and uh, so that's that's the same. Uh, political uh, reform hasn't changed. The position on that hasn't changed much at all, if anything. I, I think it's probably stronger. Um, so on, on those key things, the same. I think the only thing that I would say, so I, you know, of the major platforms, two out of three are the same. Uh, what the, the European question has changed because the European Union's changed. Uh, I think that's that's the mm. thing. And the only other thing I would, I'd put into that mix is that the the overreaching uh, of of social liberal uh, social and, and economic liberalism, the overreach that we've had, runaway liberalism over the last thirty years, has made made the current SDP much more. Um, overtly post-liberal than the 80s SDP was. So, uh, you know, post-liberalism wasn't a thing in the 80s because liberalism, liberalism <laughs> hadn't really taken hold. But, mm. but I would say now it is. And, and, and now I would say it's, uh, it's a key difference between us, uh, you know, SDP in the 1980s and, and SDP today. I just wanted to return on the proportional representation. So... In 1983, I, I believe the SDP were only around two points off Labour in the popular vote, yet uh, the party received almost 200 seats less than yeah. Labour. Is is PR the, the best answer we have to defeating the two-party system? Yeah, well, PR would would <clears throat> defeat the two-party system. It would be it would be broken up, broken. Uh, would, it would break the mould, as the, the old term, <laughs> in the eighties. Um, but just to return to that, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, you can argue. I'm not. I've never. I would never argue that the first past the post system doesn't have some advantages, um, just as PR has some advantages and disadvantages. I mean, it would be foolish to 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 to, to pretend. Um, the, well, the, um, Professor Richard Dawkins probably puts one of the best arguments for Pete uh, for first past the post that I've seen so a few of his arguments that uh, uh, we PR we always end up with coalition government reduces the abilities of parties to deliver on manifesto promises gives uh, encourages more transitional uh, transactional form of politics based on post-election horse trading mm. um, and it's a more inward looking politics which is more deals between parties than looking at the actual electorate's wants itself. So, I I think that's it's good that you've you've listed those because, as I say, I I, I don't, you know, I don't I, I don't think I don't think you you should propose something like PR without being aware of um, the, the you know the differences that will result, and I don't think you should pretend that you don't lose something. I mean, you, you first pass the post. The first thing I would say about it is, is there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful elegance to it in that uh, you have 650 constituencies and whoever wins the elections in those constituencies go to parliament. So the, the system isn't interfering with the public's rights to do what they like in those, I mean, do whatever you like. The public sort it out, you've got 650 races and whoever wins gets to parliament. That's, there's an elegance to that, a simplicity to that. Um, and also, there's a catharsis in 
in one of the supposed advantages of first past the post is that it gives decisive results. Uh, you sack a you sack a government and you replace it with another one. Uh, actually, that's not entirely true. <laughs> um, it, the results of the say seventy four elections were not decisive and the result of the 2010 election wasn't decisive and the 2015 election was just about decisive and 2017 wasn't very decisive. So, you know, you could argue that point, but the point is that, you know, someone said it was, you know, even if there's a, a wafer thin difference between Labour and Conservative in these, these, these national elections, it's within within that that millimeter that we live you know it's the ability to flush them out and you get rid of so you have this catharsis you know 97 or 79 possibly you know you get rid of them and start so i get all that i get all that but what what you what you don't have <clears throat> is uh you don't have the public voting for who they really believe in you the public's forced into an appalling compromise of which do we dislike less that's the truth. I mean, that's how people vote. And the level of genuine, uh, the, the extent to which the, the, the Tory party, for instance, can map onto people's opinions tightly is just not there. Um, you know, and, and the, the non-existence of a genuine conservative party or a genuine socially conservative party in the political landscape is, a, is, is an example of, 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 of the fact that, you know, choice has been basically been ripped away from people um you know and you hit peter hitchens calls you know tory party zombie party in a, in a sense that's true um so i don't think people can vote honestly uh i think potential competitors in in the political landscape are blocked out so it's anti-competitive you know small parties find it very difficult to get cut through uh pr it allows them to get in um and um the other basic point is that I don't think, I mean, as 83 proved and as 2015 proved for UKIP, um, the system we have doesn't match seats to votes. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the matching of seats to votes um, is, is, is terrible under first past the post. And as a kid, 83, I was 16, and I'd worked hard on that campaign in, in, in the Northeast and, and I, had, I wanted us to do very well. And the sense of just robbery, the sense of sh shocking, you know, um, corruption almost of the system. You know, you get you get 25 and a half percent of the vote and you get 23 MPs and Labour get 2.2 percent more, 27 odd, and get 210, I think they got. So there was just a, I mean, that, that the, the 83 election was an important election um, for us because, you know, that was the chance that in that stage to, to break the mold and change the system. We didn't do it. We, we failed to do it. Um, but I think we came very close to beating the Labour Party in the popular vote. And I do think had we done that, the point about PR would have been even starker. You know, you've got you've you've beaten a party that's in there with all this two hundred seats, and you've got virtually nothing. So, yeah, my my, it was the first time I think it, you know as a young person I thought, my God, you know this this is absolutely shockingly unfair. And actually, uh, I, you know, actually, since I'm not particularly keen on 
on the Liberal Party uh, desperately. But there's a, a West Country Liberal MP called uh, da uh, David Parr Penhaligon, DC Penhaligon, who gave his acceptance speech at uh, 12 noon on the following day on Friday. And in a lovely Cornish accent, called it a, a gross perversion of justice. I'm not going to try and put the Cornish accent on, but but he did, and it, and it was right, and it, and a lot of us felt it, and it was an outrage, really. But there you go. And, and one point you've made in the past, which I quite liked actually, which I, I hadn't thought about before, is uh, so we argue often that uh, PR leads to coalition governments, but as as you've stated before, the coalitions happen before the election in the UK, yeah. but we still have coalition governments in the sense. Yes. Yeah, no, it's a really key point. I mean, don't pretend. People say, I don't like coalition government. We've well, got it. <laughs> <laughs> Tory party is the coalition. Look at it now. <laughs> Look at it now. Uh, I just, as I say, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I would never say, I would never try and pretend <clears throat> that the criticisms against PR aren't, you know, fair criticisms. I mean, you know, it is true that, you know, governments, governments have to be formed after an election, generally speaking, and trade-offs, you know, happen after. But th but that's not to say that trade-offs are not happening. I mean, the, the trade-offs are happening prior to the election. Mm. And the other, you know, the other broad point is that so many manifesto pledges are, are reneged on that, 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 you know, I don't think public confidence is there anyway at the moment. <laughs> In the system we have so I, I think as i say i'm not i i would describe myself as a i mean kevin hickson dr hickson thinks that the sdp and he's an ex-chairman of the sdp uh you know and, and, and a former labor party council leader and parliamentary candidate for labor party and us uh he's you know he's pro first past the post and he said the the sdp should have a policy of first past the post mm. that way and you know and i'm not i would never say that, that you know he doesn't have some good points and I, I think he does and i would never describe myself as a hundred percent pr uh supporter i'm, I'm sort of 80 percent but I, I think in all of these you know it's 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 you can't have light without shade <laughs> you know so let, let's talk about uh the iron lady now so i've got a quote just to start uh so uh, I'm not sure when she said this, but uh, she said, freedom will destroy itself it is not, if it is not exercised within some sort of moral framework, some body of shared beliefs, some spiritual heritage transmitted through the church, the family and the school. So a lot of people will argue that Thatcherism was um, a mix of economic, let's say, libertarianism and uh, social conservatism is is that how you view Thatcherism? well maybe maybe that's what she wanted mm. but putting it bluntly the two can't be reconciled so you can't if you go for full-blown economic liberalism you're social conservative aims are undermined by that that that's the entire point that's the entire point of our politics uh you can't you can't have those two things you can have one but you can't have the other so that's the tragedy so um if i was asked to sort of i'm not the tragedy of thatcher personally is that i think she probably thought you could 
uh, I don't. I think she underestimated the the social damage that uh, mm. sort of you know globalized free market, ultra free trade liberalism, the effect that would have. I mean, one of the basic effects I talked earlier in this podcast about the the fact that Britain went through went away from an imperial type of economy to to a post war national economy, um, and Thatcher. Uh, was basically the end, the ending of that national approach. So you weren't to, there was a ban on, on the idea of nationally planning anything, uh, a national anything, you know, whether it was the cold national coal board or whatever, all of these national things uh, were, were undermined in, in favor of open international free markets, global free trade. That's the idea. Now, the, I, 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 you know, I wouldn't give Thatcher undue credit, but I would give her the credit for not really understanding what she'd unleashed, and I would, I would say that she probably didn't intend. Uh, a lot of the the consequences were unintended, but nevertheless, they are consequences, and it's where we are. So, yeah, Thatcherism is is a combination of of a desire for deregulation, a sort of free market purism, uh, which resulted in a, a, a sort of slightly naive econ-liberal approach, which is anti-planning. So you weren't to plan anything. The market miraculously sorts everything out, including your your power generation and everything <laughs> else. And, um, and, and in that sense, she wasn't a conservative anyway. Um, economic liberals are not conservatives. And she was, you saw the warning signs of this in the Tory party itself, because, um, she was hated, not, not, she was really hated by, by a section of the Tory party. Mm. And there was a lot of quite um, unappealing snobbery about that because of her background. Um, a lot of, a lot of Tory um, grandees just didn't appreciate her, her, her background and didn't, didn't, didn't appreciate where she was coming from. Um, but even if you take that away, um, you can't you can't really argue that she was a, a conservative of any kind. I think there are flickers of conservatism. Um, again, one of the things that one of the things that was a conflict all the way through was her obvious nationalism, her, uh, her national sympathy mm. with you know her say her support for the common market. So this is something that she wrestled with throughout. In fact, if she was a proper nationalist, she'd have listened to Peter Shaw's speech and, and support. <laughs> Uh, support him from the start, but she didn't. So she had this conflict right the way through the eighties of, of of being in the EU as a, as a as a as a as a British nationalist, maybe even as an English nationalist. Truth be told, um, and not being able to reconcile the two. So you, what the project was to try and make the EU more econ liberal, which she did. I mean, a, a lot of people. It's a, it's, it's a curious thing, isn't it? That a lot of British people don't realize how much the single market was, was a yeah. project that we've imposed on a lot of other people. I mean, in deindustrialization, if a, if a paper plant gets closed down in Portugal uh, and the, 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 the business goes to Germany, um, a lot of people don't realize that, that, that that's, that's, that's the model. <laughs> that basically Thatcher imposed on, on the EU. Uh, it's astonishing, really. But the, anyway, so yes, so you've got this conflict. And then by the end, I think she twigs and becomes pretty Eurosceptic. And then you get the Bruges speech. Yeah. 
and so on. So, you, but it, but these are the conflicts. They, I mean, the, the problem is that they haven't really thought things through. And as I say, as a basic idea, even now, even now, you cannot be an economic liberal and a, and a, and a proper social conservative. It's impossible. Well, I think probably the the best symbol of her conflict was her housing policy, because uh, for me, home ownership is one of the key principles of conservatism. It, it's how we, it's a, it, the, the foundation of raising a family and her, um, her uh, I forgot the policy now, the right to buy it. Yeah, the, the right to scheme arguably yeah. still has major consequences on housing prices of, of today yeah i mean right to buy is again it's 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 a good example of her conservatism in conflict so um the tories wanted home ownership to increase and they achieved that by selling off major swathes of the public housing stock cheap cheaply so it was a, a bit of a crude election bribe you could buy your council house is at a fraction of its of its value, um, and and obviously personally that's great for the family. And, and actually, a lot of people that bought, uh, you know, aspirational working class people that bought their their homes would say now it really set the family going, and it was a major benefit to them. And and uh, in a sense, I, I I wouldn't, you know, I'm not against right to buy in principle. I'm against massive discounts. Because I don't see why the state should just you know bribe people with massive discounts on their house but 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 the problem that that, that arose <clears throat> off that was that the the housing the public sector housing stock just dwindled and right to buy is fine if you replace one to one the ratio in thatcher's era was seven to one so for every seven houses that were sold only one was built so you're mm. you're feuding you're destroying the public sector housing stock and then yeah i mean over gradually over the 80s council house building was declined massively. And then when uh, um, Major uh, took over, continued, and then when New Labour took over, continued. So they did nothing, absolutely nothing. In fact, the Tories bought, built more council houses than New Labour did, which ought to, New Labour ought to be ashamed of, absolutely ashamed of, of that fact. But And, and that was coupled with uh, mass immigration as well, which put a... Yes. Yeah, so, home ownership yeah you've got the lethal lethal combination of an inept state or a whole sector of because the the state sector and housing used to outbuild the private sector year after year not by much but they used to roughly build about 170,000 mm. each uh and then it's just gone down to virtually nothing so they, they they've destroyed it and combined it with mass immigration and so your generation will find it pretty tricky to 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 get a to own a house, and um, so you're in this awful situation of, of being rent mules, and and uh, people are siphoning off your your monthly salary, uh, you know, into their bank accounts, and you can't do a lot about it. It's a scandal, but um, yeah, it's sort of origins go. And I, and I, as I say, I can't think. And the anti-family aspects of that are, are are absolutely critical, and I'm very very critical of modern conservative party people on this. Because it's absolutely, you couldn't think of, of a worse, more anti-natal, anti-family policy. But, and I can't, to be generous, I can't think that, that Thatcher wanted that to happen as the result. I think she just didn't, I think a lot of, it's unintended consequences to some extent. The the best sort of acerbic quote, isn't it, on Thatcher is that the 
it was, I think it was Peregrine Worsall and said that she, she created a Britain more in the image of her son than her father. <laughs> Great quote, yeah. Brilliant, brilliantly cutting uh, and true. From what I've seen, the, the SDP has recently published uh, a new paper on uh, housing. What are some of the key policies surrounding that area? Yeah, it's a new policy, uh, and we're very excited about it. Um, it's it's very um, uh, analytically put together. Actually, we 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 wanted to diagnose the housing crisis. What what is causing it? Um, we wanted to have a robust set of solutions to it. So, what's causing the housing crisis? It's I think very simple. It's a combination of two things: very high uh, immigration and uh, the loss, the complete destruction of state sector capacity in house building. If you combine those two things, you, you're going to end up with a, a very serious problem. First on immigration, um, gross migration to the United Kingdom can, can get very close to a million a year. Uh, and the net figure is, is often in the region of a third of a million. Now, just to house those third of a million people, if average household size is 2.4 you're going to need you know over 100,000 houses for that and and the people that govern us haven't don't seem to be aware of this or address themselves to this problem but that's it um so immigration is too high and should be reduced if you want to have a, a, a serious attempt to solve the housing crisis um, and in terms of public sector capacity, again, that's something the public sector used to build roughly the same number of houses as the private sector. It used to outbuild it in some years, 170,000 a year, roughly. And uh, that's gone down to sort of 30,000. If you if you count housing corporations and registered social landlords and others building houses. So it's been, it's collapsed, absolutely collapsed. Uh, so you need to reinstate that if you're at all serious about solving the housing crisis so what we did we asked the policy team to um address their, themselves logically to this and um uh we asked them you know what do you need to solve it to get the house to get state sector housing back uh, well you need an entity to do it you need uh, a series of bodies to actually build the houses and we in that respect we propose housing development corporations based on county level so you'd establish these all over the country Second thing they need is powers to implement uh, house building. So you need to have uh, land assembly powers, uh, compulsory purchase powers, and you also need the power to give yourself planning permission, which the development corporations in the 80s had, which is a slight, we've modeled our system on the 80s of uh, development corporations. So they'd have the power to do it. And then you, 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 you've got to fund it and uh, the funding of our program is is a little intriguing in that it, it it involves taxing something called planning gain. Planning gain is the uplift in value attributable to being granted planning permission. So let's imagine you have a field somewhere close to a village. It's worth ten thousand pounds as an agricultural field, uh, and suddenly it gets planning permission for housing, and it's worth several million. Um, the point about that is that the jump in value isn't attributable um, on its own to just the fact that it's got 
you know planning for housing it's because you've got is next to facilities it's next to roads it's next to a, you know a settlement with um shops and other houses and um, medical facilities and schools and so on so that's the the reason that it's jumped in value is 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 because of the wider community and i think it's a reasonable uh uh point to say that you know because the jump in value is attributable to that that the, the the state should tax it um the so that would raise billions of pounds basically it would raise enough for our program and uh the consequence the only consequence uh, of that as michael taylor said recently is that some landowners and some probably speculators are going to have little less money to spend on lamborghinis and yachts uh, but that's a price we're prepared to pay uh, and it, and actually socially it's a price worth paying so um that's the program and and, and it's a great policy it's, it's it's well thought out uh it's 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 costed it doesn't require any increase in general taxation to pay for it i should say actually one point of ludicrous um uh, position we've ended up in is that the government spends about six billion pounds a year on promoting house building social house building now and it spends 26 billion on on housing benefit <laughs> so a lot of which goes to private landlords and not there's anything wrong with that but the but the point is it, it's a typical short term you know you're paying people money to pay rent but you're not dealing with the fundamental problem of not building enough houses so it's a well thought out scheme and um you know and i i'd, I'd thoroughly recommend people have a have a look at it on the website i think as well that we need to differentiate between a small estate and a weak estate uh, i recently read a, an excellent article in the unheard which was titled uh, we need macmillan not thatcher yeah and it, it was criticizing uh, the two candidates for constantly exalting uh, mrs thatcher but a lot of people seem to believe that during her time the the state became smaller but it actually grew so we, we we have a lot more civil service than we have we have a lot more state bureaucracy but at the same time the state has grown a lot weaker because we tend to outsource a lot of the responsibilities to uh, private enterprises and other uh, national organizations so Although the state has got bigger, it now has a lot less power to do a lot of the things uh, that it has. And th this is something that a lot of people don't understand sometimes when they talk about smaller states. Mm. They're actually talking about a weaker state at the time. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, that, that piece in Unheard, I think, was written by uh, Aris Rusinos, who's a great yeah. writer. Uh, he's, he's he's right about that um yeah it's very perplexing for the general public to see that despite what the conservatives say they they often increase the size of the state and the state's more inept than it was before <laughs> reasons for that but the yeah basic state productivity ambition is a reason responsibility is reason a lot of uh state actors lack the responsibility to take decisions and then be accountable for them so they outsource and put mm. responsibility not just consultants but actually uh, provision and um, uh, and uh, and so on out to other people because they go now I think our, our vision the SCP's vision is is to get I hate saying back to but it is is a fact back to uh, uncomplicated direct provision of services um, 
that is the best way to deliver services. And uh, it, it, yeah, it, I, I, I don't want a massive state, um, but I want a strong, capable state. And you can have it if you if you look at you know the, the, the rot sets in culturally. I think it's one of these things that a lot of our problems are cultural, not economic. Uh, because they're cultural, they end up being economic as well. But mm, mm. You know, they, they, they uh, you've just got a lack of will, a lack of leadership, and a lack of, you know, a lot of public sector bodies are not keeping things simple. Um, HR departments are creating non jobs, literally. <laughs> and, you know, you've forgotten about basic provision, which can be done directly. And it won't be done be better economically by complicating it by outsourcing, it will be done better by working out what you're going to provide and directly providing it. And going back to Mrs. Thatcher, I was, I was just curious, what, what were the demographics of her electorate? Because it's often painted that she was in the north of England and in industrial towns, she was seen as, as the devil and hated. And is that the, the complete picture of it's not a complete picture. She was she was deeply disliked. I mean, it was a, it was it was a period of deep division in 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 the country, and you had the miners' strike, uh, which was you know um, deeply divisive as well. So that was that was after eighty three. But uh, um, I, I, the her, the complexion of her 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 voting block was was interesting. It's a little bit reminiscent of the the red wall now a little bit um the the way it was characterized as the c2s as they call them you know these dreadful categorizations mm. social categorizations ab's and C, c1s and c2s and it was the c2s that were pivotal um sort of anecdotally it's 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 seen as essex man basically it's seen as aspirational working class people uh <clears throat> who want to get on and and I think there was a lot in that. Uh, I think right to buy was part of that, and um, yeah, and a lot of people just thought you know st uh, state socialism that was offered by by foot, and also the you know you had hints of quite an interesting point about the eighty three Labour manifesto. It was the start of rainbow coalition um, minority interest coming to the fore. So it was really, I think, the start of. ID politics, actually, if you look at it seriously. Mm. Uh, and Peter Shaw criticised at the time and said, you won't win an election like that. The, the best of socialism is uniting people and uh, uniting the majority behind it, not constantly looking at minority differences and, and so on. But so there was, was a lot in it. I think, I think, yeah, I think Thatcher's coalition was was quite broad. And it, if it wasn't, she wouldn't have won a landslide mm. in 83 and uh, an 87. Obviously, 83 landslide was, and we haven't talked about it yet, but, you know, largely affected by the, the Falklands uh, conflict, uh, which which did rally a certain type of patriotism to to the Tory cause. Although the it's not well understood, I think, sometimes that the there was broad, broad consensus among the political class uh, for the campaign. So uh, although Thatcher and the Tories did very well out of it politically, because the war was won, uh, and it was a war worth fighting and worth winning, but um, the most of the Labour Party and all, you know, the SDP's leadership supported it. 
And I think uh, there were some polls which had uh, the Conservatives as low as third place before the, the Falklands War. Yeah, uh, just on the mathematics. I mean, if the SDP, there was a famous poll in, in 82, which gave the SDP, I think, 50, just over 50%, 51% of the vote. I mean, on the maths, you can't have that and not come third or, or, or a bad second. At <laughs> 25% left for the other two. But a poll like that wasn't, uh, you know, it's not sustainable. Um, and uh, as I say, the, the 83 election itself, the SDP was, was an interesting exercise a lot of work's been done after that you know could could the party have done better uh i mean without going into the gory details there were a lot of um a lot of things could have gone better um but having you know having two leaders for instance having Steele and jenkins yeah and jenkins wasn't a wasn't a, an inspirational leader he was although he'd been a, assumed high office and was the most senior of the gang of four um politically on a retail basis probably wasn't the best of the four and and i say the public in the in the general election campaign didn't understand uh the concept of joint leadership really in prime they, you know they called jenkins prime minister designate and all this sort of thing and actually Steele, uh, i hate to say this was a was a better of the two was a better uh retail politician so um yeah, a lot of a lot will be written and, and thought about could could it have been better for the sdp's point of view but the falklands campaign certainly was a a, a major plus for the tories uh, well let's just finish on the falklands war then because for me it's very fascinating uh conflict and one which uh, a lot of people don't know the full picture because it's quite often portrayed as as margaret thatcher was the, the savior of the Falklands Islands, but for a very long time, the the policy was to try and get rid of the Falklands because it was too much of a burden on the taxpayers. So it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think they, I mean, it's an interesting conflict in that it really did take the Tories, the government by surprise. Um, the, the, you've got to remember 80, 82 is still in the, in sort of, well, recent memory, but also you, you've only just had Lancaster House talks on on uh, on Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. So you're very much, you know, and only how long, you know, just over a decade before that was the last of the, uh, you know, granting independence to various previous colonial uh, assets. You know, so they they you're in this you're in this post-war winds of change. The end of it is still there and sort of very much in living memory. This process of Britain getting getting shot of uh, um, of, uh, of imperial baggage, if you like, um, and I think that's how it was seen. I think, yeah, a load of windswept islands, lightly populated <laughs> in the South Atlantic, had no real economic value. Um, you know, the, the, apparently there is oil underneath there, still is, but it's never been it's never been exploited. There was no there was no prospect of that at that time. And and was largely neglected. And I think there was something like ninety, uh, ninety uh, British troops on on the Falklands, something like that, a tiny group. And um, and the, the British government and the, the Argentinians always laid claim to this thing. Um, if you hold if you hold if you hold these islands as long as the British had, the claim the Argentinian claim is is I think quite weak and. Um, Argentina itself is a colony, 
I mean, it's like it's 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 it was a a, a weak um, claim, I think. But uh, in any case, they 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 made it, and I think the British government, um, from the Argentinian point of view, was seen just to not to take the Falklands very seriously and not care about them very much. Yeah. And I, in international relations, we still we're still in this realm now of not understanding each other very well. I mean, you know, Pelosi's gone off to. Taiwan. Uh, whatever you think of that, she has the right to go to a, an independent state if she wants. It's not a state that's you know, recognised everywhere. I think perhaps it should be, but uh, she's got the right to go there. But the, the Chinese reaction of, of lobbing missiles into the ocean is so disproportionate. You, it, it illustrates that her doing that, she, she probably doesn't understand what that looks like from a Chinese point of view. <laughs> you know, we're, always, we're always, in international relations, we're always misunderstanding each other. I think this was one. I think the from the Argentinian point of view, they looked at the British government doesn't take these islands very seriously. There's cutting back uh, a key. Uh, there was a key uh, a ship that supplied, yeah. supplied the islands was cut, and and so they thought no, actually they they will we'll try it on. We'll just we'll see what they 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 think. And of course, Galtieri, you know, not a democratically elected leader, <laughs> a fascist, um, goes in. Uh, and invades, and there's nothing that the, the troops there can do to stop it. And suddenly, the, you 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 enrage the British people, and the, like any people, uh, you know, it's interesting when when a country goes into a sort of war footing. Socially, it's interesting um, because if you had any doubts, you only need to attend a meeting. Matthew Paris talks about this actually. He was an MP in Derbyshire. He said he had slight doubts, and he turned up to a meeting in Derbyshire, and he said any doubts were 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 just dispelled by the rage in the meeting. So you're going to get a war to get these things back. Whether the things were worth it or not, what it was about um, was the principle that a, a British colonial asset or a British asset. Let's not call, call it colonial, but just a British asset. Uh, in the South Atlantic, can't be taken by uh, force by a, a effectively a fascist leader. So that was the backdrop, and only you know, but a but a few, and you could count on your hand a number of uh, slightly eccentric. Some of them uh, MPs in the Labour Party didn't support it. Everyone else supported it uh, pretty much wholeheartedly, and and Thatcher got the credit for it. Um, Lord Carrington, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, resigned in the days that people resigned and took responsibility for things, honorable thing to do. He said, you know, it's on my watch, I've got it wrong and resigned. Um, and pretty pretty quickly you got this maritime task force put together. And the war itself was was not actually as, it was a closer run thing than, than even, well, certainly than we were led to believe at the time. Um, not clear at all that you'd definitely win that war, but they did and we lost uh, ships and men, and as, as mm. did the Argentinians, it's a tragedy like like all uh, wars of choice. Uh, uh, there's a nice little story as well where um, uh, I think so. The the Conservatives were were desperately trying to actually resolve this before the a war would kick off, and the, they'd come up with a policy where they would give Argentina the islands, but Argentina would effectively lease the islands back for a hundred years so those who lived on the islands would be able to live out their lives and Argentina could claim we've, we've got the islands back and uh, 
so they they sent off uh, like a, an old Tory grandee who uh, who is called Rex Hunt and uh, yeah. to, to become the sort of uh, yeah the governor yeah. the governor and uh, he was told that his mission was to to try and dissuade the people from from staying and to take the deal and within a couple of weeks of living there he he completely fell enamored with with the place and he said it was more british than britain and uh, he became a, a staunch defender yeah. of uh, of the island's rights and yeah uh, yeah it's a, it's an it's an impossible thing you can't i'm afraid you can't um the british couldn't couldn't stand for the principle of of a of, of a, a, a war of choice aggression um uh succeeding so the the war was the Falklands war was was um a tragedy but it was necessary and, mm. and it was right and uh, and and it did it did lead to after the massive economic slump after thatcher got in um which is a separate economic debate, you know, a 300 odd economists writing to them and saying you're doing the wrong thing. Um, but, uh, you know, the unemployment went up a lot. It was, you know, sharply divided country. It did bring people together in some ways. It was mm. a resurgence, like any situation of this kind, it's a resurgence of national pride. And, uh, you know, um, the Newsweek magazine. And it was interesting, the American reaction. Uh, Reagan and Casper Ka Weinberger, who was the Secretary of State then, you know, solidly backed Thatcher in this. And, you know, you could argue from a, you know, a sort of America's point of view that they might not have done that. But actually, it was the middle of the Cold War and Thatcher was a key ally and they did. And there was no question about it. it um, the use by the Argentinians of some French technology to take out uh, uh, ships, the Exocet missile, um, was was controversial, but from the French point of view, um, it, it was tragedy from British point of view from, from that. But the, from the French point of view, what were they to do? They'd sold these weapons. They they are a, an arms supplier to various countries around the world. What were they going to do? So they, you know, um, yeah, uh, it, it's an interesting time. It, there certainly was a, a resurgence in national pride from it, and it was a, a big benchmark. And I think. I think there's no doubt, just going back to what we were talking about before, there's no doubt that it had a big effect on the on the result of the 83 election and contributed to the, the landslide. And just to finish off then, so we, we've talked about the, the winter of discontent, uh, the breakdown in the post-war consensus, the inflation, unemployment, all, all these economic hardships. Uh, a lot of people describe Thatcher as a necessary evil was there any alternative to Thatcherism in the 1980s or was it inevitable? I don't think it was inevitable. Um, I think uh, I think the whole of British history would have been different had Callaghan gone, this is another major, you know, uh, counterfactual question in British history, which is, I mean, Callaghan, we may see this now, by the way, Callaghan waited and waited in bad circumstances to the bitter end and lost an election. And the question in the Labour Party's, uh, from the Labour Party's point of view is, could he, could he have had an election in, in 78 and won? It's quite considerable evidence he could. Uh, <laughs> and he didn't. And so had he done that, all the rest of history might well have been different. I mean, for a start, Thatcherism um, presupposes Thatcher. 
Uh, does Thatcher stay on as leader having lost an election? Not sure. Not sure. If she loses in in 78, uh, could have been a change. Um, it's a much broader, it's a much broader question as to whether Britain could have avoided the sort of mass uh, economic liberalism that we've seen. Broader question as to whether many states could have avoided the globalization that we've seen, which is interlinked with it, really. Um, but I, I don't buy the necessary evil stuff. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not necessary to deindustrialize brutally in the way they did. It's not necessary to um, hollow out, say, the mining industry and replace it with nothing. Uh, the, a lot of that is just not very sensible or, or moral, actually. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't buy it. I think, I, think I, I don't deny that the, the, where we started in this podcast, the sort of post-war consensus was breaking down somewhat. Um, but Thatcherism was a, was a brutal uh, reaction to it. And as I said at the start, Thatcherism and economic liberalism has some, somehow miraculously got away with whitewashing and painting its legacy in, in false terms it's its record economically is abysmal it's its growth rates are, are poor um it's its productivity has fallen productivity growth is worse post 80 than it was before and um you know the legacy is division and 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 um rancor so i don't i don't think its record is as good as its its uh, proponents say that's the problem well, William, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank, thanks again for coming on. It's great. It's been a pleasure from my side. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you. And uh, that was the first episode of the Retro Political Tipster. And uh, in the future, we'll be looking to uh, speak to other people about uh, historical events as well as continuing uh, with the elections of today. So... Thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you for another episode soon. Thank you.